Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and on today's episode of All Shall Be Well, it is our pleasure to have Andy Kolber as our guest. Andy is a licensed professional counselor, writer, and speaker in Castle Rock, Colorado. Andy is passionate about the integration of faith and psychology and its significance for the church today. As a survivor of trauma and a lifelong learner, Andy brings hard-won knowledge around the work of change, the power of redemption, and the beauty of experiencing God in our pain. Thank you, Andy, for being our guest today. And with most of our audience being women in academia, we like to always begin with our guests sharing about their educational background. So would you tell us a little bit about your background, what you're doing now, and how you ended up on this path? Yeah, so I um, got my undergrad in business, actually, which is really interesting. Um, I, I actually wanted to be a lawyer, a social justice lawyer. And so for a long time, you know, I sort of had this desire to um, go kind of more that route. I I wanted to help people, actually, but that's sort of how I saw that playing out. And then when I finished um, my undergrad at Pacific Lutheran University, um, I just had this really big aha moment that basically becoming a lawyer was not the best fit for me, which ultimately I think is such a good thing because I, um, I really appreciate the role of law, but I found that I wanted to find a different way to help people. And so, you know, as I explored some options and, and really my own story, I was more and more pulled towards looking at mental health. And, and after about a year of, of looking at options, I decided to go to Denver Seminary and I, I got my degree in community counseling. Um, and then during that time, I also, you know, had an, an integrated sort of education around also biblical studies and theology and that type of thing, which has actually been invaluable to me as, mm-hmm. as a person who, um, from, faith, you know, from a faith perspective, who's also working with psychology. Great. So then the the courses for graduate school, what it was, you know, a counseling degree, right? A master's in counseling? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But with also yep. with, with also the sort of seminary mm-hmm. classes as well. Yeah. So the program that I did, it's you know, if you're if you're in this um, sort of area of academia, it's um, it's KCREP accredited, which is essentially the accrediting body of um, you know counseling education. But mm-hmm. so then there was all the the you know the classes and the criteria for that, and then additionally something like another I might I'm I'm totally misquoting this, but I would say like uh, sixteen to twenty credits of, okay. of also like biblical studies and theology, you know, biblical interpretation, things like that. Okay. Yeah. So then if you could go back to your first year of graduate school, what is one thing you would tell yourself that you know now? That's such a great question. I have learned so much since then, but I think if I could sit myself down in that time, I would love to help myself hear that it's a process. And it's really okay to be a, a learner. 
you know, that I think, um, my background is that I, I would really push myself super hard, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's, I didn't have much tolerance for, um, the process that it takes a while before we become good at something, you know, like there has to be learners that's necessary. And so I think that is something I would definitely tell myself. Yeah, that's, that's good advice for sure. For, for all of us, no matter what age we are, I think that everything is a process Mm -hmm. Uh, related to that. The rates of anxiety and stress seem to be increasing significantly for graduate students or even for faculty, especially um, as we get into like the end of the semester, but especially when the holidays roll around and you have finals on top of that. What are your thoughts or what thoughts could you offer our community on best ways to cope with anxiety and stress? Yeah, that's a great question. And and definitely like one of the internships I did was actually at a university and, you know, you could literally you know, look at the calendar and just know when in the year, not just the calendar, but you could look at, you know, my, my counseling schedule in terms of how many people were trying to get in for like a therapy session. And that would help you to know what part of the semester it was in, you know, like to see the intensity. And so I really resonate with this question and, and just in terms of the experience of so many people. And one of the, the really basic things that I would say is that Oftentimes in West, Western culture, especially, we tend to be very disembodied, meaning we know a lot of things in our head and we experience them or are completely disconnected from them in our body. And so I think stress and anxiety is very connected to this. And so I think what I would say about that is understanding that those things actually are happening in your body. Like they are an energy. They are a, um, there is literally, you know, anyone who struggles with anxiety could probably, you know, resonate with this idea that you can feel this intensity that lives in your body. And so one of the tips that I would give is, is to really have the perspective of how do you care for and really help that energy not necessarily get stuck in your body, but maybe move through. And so some examples of that would be, you know, movement can be very helpful in terms of, and this is not necessarily anything new, but I think we don't always connect these ideas that we know about them, but we don't necessarily do them. And so really honoring what our body is telling us. So if our body is exhausted and stressed out, pushing ourselves more isn't actually going to (laughs) help. It's going to make it worse, you know? (laughs) And I mean, I get this, like I, I lived that life. You know, I, I always say like, I often white knuckled it through a lot Mm -hmm. of my life. Like just if I can just push a little harder And one of the ideas that's become really important to me in my work, both as a therapist and just also as a person, as a Christian, is this idea, like, what does it look like to actually be more gentle, to try softer? And so I think the question is, is how do we really prioritize in a way that honors our actual limits and Mm -hmm. honors our actual body? And sometimes that might mean being okay with a lower grade because our sanity needs that. Right. And I think that's a really hard thing to say, you know, like most people don't love that. So that would be a couple of thoughts. Yeah, those are great. And I think, I think you're right about 
sort of be that idea of being okay with a lower grade. It's very countercultural for people in higher education, like graduate school, med school, to say, yes, I'm okay with a lower grade is goes against the grain in so many ways. So mm-hmm. you, you mentioned yeah. you, you might share uh, some examples of how we can sort of connect more with our bodies or take care of our bodies. Can you say more about that? Yeah. You know, I think at its core, um, what I'm meaning is that almost anything we do can be an embodied experience. And, and so what I mean by that is, when I say embodied is that we're paying attention to the sensations and the experience of our body. And so like, there's a lot of people who could go outside and go for a run and be totally disconnected from their body. You know, they're so focused or ruminating on something that it's not to say that that run isn't helpful, but, but it's like, what does it look like to actually listen to what's going on in your body? Because it just gives you a lot of information and some activities are more innately, um, they help us to connect with, with those things more. And I would say, you know, yoga can be a great um, practice because it, it tends to turn us back towards just listening to what's actually going on. I also think things like um, mindfulness or contemplative prayer can be really helpful. Also, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit more, but definitely counseling or just talking with someone who's safe. <laughs> and what I mean by that is someone who isn't going to shame you for where you're at. Someone who can help you to sort of own your story. You know, it's like if you're overwhelmed, you're overwhelmed. <laughs> and, and how do we just start there? How do we be gentle with that place rather than rushing to fix it. And it's not to say that there aren't things that can help. But oftentimes, you know, we have neuropsychology that kind of helps us to understand that when someone is truly with us in a way that feels safe, it's like our right brains are talking to each other. And there's something really powerful about that in terms of calming our entire sort of nervous system down. And And really, all of these things that I'm talking about have to do with honoring our nervous system. And so as a trauma therapist, particularly, which is what I, you know, what I tend to specialize in, we are often looking at how our nervous system is functioning and if we're outside of our window of tolerance. And and what I mean by that is if it doesn't really matter, like, I guess, let me back up a little bit. When we're outside of side of our window of tolerance, it basically means we're in fight or flight mode or okay. we are dissociating. Mm-hmm. And so when that happens, there's just, that can A, be traumatizing because we're, put, we're pushing our body to a place that it cannot maintain and it cannot sustain. And that's just, that's not helpful. You know, that leads to things like chronic illness and um, to breakdowns and to feelings of isolation and aloneness. And so if we're living in that place, it's just not helpful. So all those practices that I'm naming are really helping us to get back into our window of tolerance. Mm, That makes sense. So two questions then to follow up with what you just shared. When would you say a person should seek professional help? Like you you mentioned going to see a counselor. And then the second question, Mm -hmm. 
uh, you mentioned a safe, uh, talking with a safe person. So let's say it's not, mm-hmm. you don't need professional help. You don't need to go see a counselor, but who, how would you know who's a safe person? So first of all, and for the first question, um, in terms of knowing if it's time to go to prof- for professional help, I would say, you know, it can be difficult for everyone to access professional help, but right. if you are consistently dealing with anxiety, um, even if you don't think it's, um, if, if you could see me now, I'm holding up quotations, clinical, <laughs> even okay. if you don't think it's clinical, if this is something that you're constantly dealing with, I just want to really encourage your listeners to know like there's absolutely no shame in going to see a therapist before things feel like they're critical. In fact, it's so wise to, to get support and to seek support before things feel like they are in this place where it's, it's a crisis. And so that's one thing I would just say in general. Um, but I, I would also say that um, there, you know, generally speaking, if, you know, something is clinical when it begins to impair our life, when it is chronic, um, when it's affecting our relationships, our sleep, our um, ability to function, that is significant. And so if you are finding, as you begin to pay attention to your body, to yourself, to your rhythms, that that's true for you, I would encourage you to reach out to someone. As much as we don't want mental health issues to be stigmatized, the reality is a lot of us are like, I'm too strong for that. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're yeah. like, I, like, I'm the exception. I'm the one who actually doesn't need that kind of help. And the reality is that we live in a very high-intensity society, especially in academia. I would say that there are some really significant systemic stressors that exist in that culture. And so there's just absolutely no shame in, in reaching out for help. Yeah, that's helpful. So then I, and now I have a question related to that answer. Um, but going back to how do you determine who is a safe person? Yeah, I think this is a really important question. And to be honest, not one that is simple, but I think there are places to start. Generally speaking, we need um, time with a person to know if they're safe. It's hard to know when we've maybe first met someone um, if they're automatically safe. And so, you know, but the things that I would look for as someone develops a relationship with a person is to, to watch how they handle the bits of information you do give them. Mm. And to also observe how do they talk about other people and their experiences. Folks who tend to be really judgmental towards others and themselves oftentimes are going to be have a harder time holding space for you in a way that is safe. And that doesn't mean that you can't have a certain level of a relationship with a person. I just would encourage your listeners to consider um, whether something that feels really vulnerable is appropriate to share with a person who you find doesn't sort of meet that criteria of what we've already said, you know, like not shaming folks and not being rushed, like super quick to fix something when you hear someone's in pain or 
like those types of things. And so, you know, I think for, for many people who've grown up in families maybe where, you know, maybe they never learned what safety looked like and felt like, that can be especially difficult and tricky, which is actually why therapy is really helpful. <laughs> because right. part of that, part of that is learning in a in hopefully, God willing, a safe environment, how to I sort of have those safe relationships and, and you know, it's sort of, I, we, I always say it's like a microcosm that therapy is a microcosm of your world. And so you bring in these ideas and these experiences to talk about with a person who is safe so that you can transfer it to your actual life. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't, if you've found that you've ultimately connected with a lot of people in your life who turn out to be unsafe, that would be another great reason to go to therapy, to, to be able to begin to identify what are you not seeing? What are you missing as you begin to get to know people that puts you in a position where you find that the relationship becomes unsafe? Yeah. And likewise, uh, would you say that people could try on a counselor, so to speak? So determining for themselves if they feel like the counselor they go to could be a safe person. Yeah. I mean, I encourage folks who are getting into counseling to interview their counselors. Um, I tend to recommend that they find maybe three um, counselors that they're interested in, you know, in terms of their background. And usually you can find whether through like psychology today or referrals through your church or your university. And I would just say it's totally appropriate to have a conversation with your with your potential therapist and, and to get the feel for what they're like. And again, it's not that you're going to know for sure that they are um, completely safe, but you can tell a lot in a first conversation in terms of, do you feel comfortable? Do you feel like this is a person you could open up to? Not necessarily immediately, because even in a counseling relationship, trust has to be built and that's totally okay. And then I usually encourage people to give it at least maybe two to three times to sort of to feel that out and to be honest with your counselor about whether if it feels safe or not. Because the hope is, is that that therapist has had enough training to be able to discuss that in a way that's really helpful and hopefully healing for the client. Yeah, absolutely. So then uh, earlier you mentioned um, some systemic stressors that kind of are are more prevalent, maybe, well, maybe not more prevalent in the university setting, but that exist. Um, And so sort Mm -hmm. of thinking about some of those, and it's kind of a timely question. Uh, Many women Mm -hmm. in higher education are dealing with, you know, sexual harassment or microaggressions while simultaneously dealing with the stress of, you know, striving to earn a degree um, or tenure if you're a faculty member, mm-hmm. uh, and perhaps even more so for women of color. Do you have any thoughts mm-hmm. for, for women who might be dealing with, you know, some of these things like microaggressions or sexual harassment in, in the university setting? Yeah, um, I think that's a great question, and, and you're absolutely correct. It's, it is a very timely question with what's going on in our culture right now. I think that there are two parts to this answer. And one is what I would call the individual level. So from an individual level, it's kind of similar to the other answers in the sense of 
you know, finding support, finding safe people on a, in a very specific way. You know, like if I had a client who came in with these issues, some of the things I'd be working with them around is helping them sort of have a script in terms of when they are dealing with really difficult or triggering situations. For example, things that um, um, sexually inappropriate comments or inappropriate, um, just just the microaggression piece about who they are as a person, as a woman, in terms of their value or their abilities. I would be helping them. One of the things I do with my clients is sort of create a framework of, of like a potential real life situation. And we actually practice that to help them get resources around um, because it's very interesting in our brain when we visualize something and it actually records in our brain in a neural pathway in the same way as if we've already lived it. And so doing that in a safe setting, like for, for instance, with your therapist, um, where you then also figure out what resources you would need empowers a person to know exactly what to, maybe not exactly, but more apt to say what they actually want to say, to be able to set the boundaries they need to set, to be able to say, this is not appropriate. You know what I mean? So, and that is actually helpful in terms of resilience and helping people not be traumatized. So I think, you know, for your listeners, one of the things that I would encourage is that even if they're not with a therapist, is to be able to think about what are some things that you feel comfortable saying that feel empowering to you to sort of hold your space. And maybe it means even just giving yourself permission to leave the situation. Because with something that can have like a traumatic energy to it, which I would say the things that you've named is um, repetitive, repetitive microaggressions, repetitive sexual harassment, definitely would I would consider to be little t trauma. And if that isn't something that we work with, meaning that we have enough resources and support to process, that can really come to affect our overall narrative. And so all that to say, having a lot of resources and sort of almost like the pre-planning can really go a long way in that sense. So it's almost like like oftentimes if you have an experience that's negative, I know for myself, I often think of things that I would have liked to have said, you know, like Mm -hmm. days later, I'll think of, oh, this would have been a great response. So you're suggesting kind of practicing those responses in advance, although you Mm -hmm. can't necessarily uh, know that things are going to happen. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I want to be careful not to put the burden on women to have to think that they know everything that's going to happen. Right. But I think that we can say, because I've had these experiences in the past, they can inform how I'm going to handle it in the future. And so it makes us say, you know, when I feel like a man is being inappropriate, um, I have permission to leave. And to actually take time to visu- even visualize that is can be super powerful in terms of when an instance comes that we 
sort of are able to tap into those neural pathways that have practiced that. Or when someone says, you know, makes a demeaning comment to say, you know what, I, I really don't appreciate your comment. Could you please, could you please leave or could you please stop or, you know, whatever that the necessity of that is. Because again, with something that has a traumatic energy to it, part of what makes it feel traumatic is the, is the experience of not having a voice and a choice. And so when we, when we do encounter those things, the more that we feel like we have a voice and the more that we think we have choices, the more we resilient we'll be. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So then sort of related to the systemic stressors, uh, maybe not as much mm-hmm. systemic, but recently I was talking with a colleague who works primarily with medical students um, who mentioned the high rates of burnout, even within the first couple of years or even within the first year of med school, um, mm. kind of that, that compounded stress of, you know, the academic life, but also um, experiencing maybe vicarious trauma or compassion fatigue. Have you seen this sort of in your own work? I mean, I don't know if you've, you know, counseled med students, though, mm-hmm. but I've seen mm-hmm. this to be true too for grad students and in social work and counseling or other helping fields. Being a trauma-informed uh, LPC, could you speak into ways to avoid burnout or how to not become sort of hardened or cynical? Yeah. And I think that this is a really important question. And one of the things that in my work I have seen a lot is a lot of folks who are connected to the medical field in the sense that maybe they're patients and sometimes doctors who are never really, well, I'll just say first from the patients, often experience those situations in a, in a way that can feel really disturbing, like their interactions with doctors have often felt lacking in compassion. And I think that actually speaks to what you're saying is that oftentimes, you know, medicine is so much tied to pain, honestly, right? Like we usually go to the doctor, not because we're well, but because we're hurting, you know? And so when, uh, when a person who, you know, is a doctor or, or as you're saying, a med student is faced with intense amounts of human pain or any type of pain, really, and they don't have the tools to process it, right? Like we talked about in like our last question, this energy of trauma, the thing that can make something traumatic, the thing that can give someone vicarious trauma or secondary trauma or compassion fatigue is that the trauma is stuck in our body. And the reason it gets stuck is because we don't have the resources and the support to move through it. And what I mean when I say move through it is that, again, going back to that, the comment about being outside of our window of tolerance, if we encounter someone who is a patient, let's say, who's in intense pain, and that feels really scary to this med student, but the med student is told, that's just part of the job. You got to suck mm-hmm. it up. And so the med student, let's say, in their internal, like in their nervous system, is feeling maybe a lot of fear about what's happening. But they are then told, "You're you can't have that feeling." What can actually happen is they disconnect from their body in order to 
be able to just keep going. And the problem with that is that when we disconnect from our body, because it's too painful, because we're outside of our window of tolerance, the, um, that what's called the adaptive information processing system in our body, which is the mechanism that processes disturbing material is actually turned off. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like having a gigantic dinner and you never digest it because your stomach's not working. That's what trauma is like. Like, and, and then when we continue not to be able to process it, it just gets more full and more full. And so what begins to happen is that our body can only do that for so long before we begin to reap the consequences of that. So that might be, again, that could look like um, panic attacks or it could look like you know, anger at things that feel totally disproportionate. It could look like needing to numb yourself with alcohol or drugs because you don't know how to be present because there's just too much pain. It could look like, you know, just general PTSD symptoms. Mm. And so, so the costs are quite high to not having the tools to work through pain. So on a very basic level, what this means is, is that when we do not have the tools to feel our feelings, to move through the disturbance, we are not able to process even little emotions maybe. And then we are really not ready to process full on PTSD. So we're actually more prone to all types of traumatic experiences when that happens. So then it just sort of compounds on top of each other. Absolutely. And so in terms of this medical piece, you know, if you have folks who've had to totally disconnect from their experience in order to just keep working, it would make sense that they become cynical, right? Because they're, because you don't know what else to do. You're not sure how else, you know, and I want to be careful. I don't think this is true of every single person in the medical field. But I do think, unfortunately, a lot of folks who go into the medical field, this is really overlooked very much. Sure. And it's absolutely a challenging situation if that isn't built into the curriculum. But I know for me as a graduate student in counseling, you know, we have assignments all the time where we need to write out what we'll do for self-care. Assuming for yourself then that you experience some con- compassion fatigue in your in your role, what are some of the ways that you take care of yourself and a- avoid that cynicism? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is so important. You know, I really well. A, I have a therapist. <laughs> um, that's <laughs> that's an important rhythm to me. Um, I am a survivor of trauma, and so it is. You know, I look at it like. Part of that is I have a very attuned, I'm, I'm a, tend to be very sensitive and I have really, I, I tend to be very um, connected to other people's emotions and when they're experiencing them. And that's a gift in my profession. Like I'm grateful for that. But also what that means is if I'm not careful, just like what you're saying, it would not be that hard for me to burn out or experience um, vicarious trauma. And so besides, you know, being in my own therapy and that type of thing, I, 
I do a lot to really pay attention to my own nervous system and to really track what's going on with my body. And I do this even with my clients. The more I have learned about trauma work um, and somatic psychology and all of those elements, the more it's made me understand that I, as a therapist, what I am experiencing in the therapy room is, is actually a really helpful tool to understand what's going on with my client. And so like oftentimes, you know, there, there may be times when a person who is in like really intense pain around a situation and I begin to feel um, symptoms in my body it's oftentimes similar to what they're experiencing because I'm so cued in to what what's going on with them. And so I share that with you because when I get home then, mm-hmm. I have to then say, how do I track my nervous system and help myself unwind um, the intensity that I just walked through with that person? So the, the tools that I tend to use, I do a lot of mindfulness. I definitely utilize things like contemplative prayer at times. I do a lot of walking and I do that in a very intentional way, like with the intention of what is called resourcing. So listening to music that is very intentionally helping to strengthen the parts of myself that connect to hope, Um, connecting to affirmations that help me feel and experience the truth that that I am capable of both loving people, but also taking care of myself, that it's okay to have boundaries. And, and you know, oftentimes it's reaching out to people close to me and saying, hey, like I, I am having a hard day. Can I, I can use some support today, you know? And right. so I think it's important to remember that therapists are people too, <laughs> you know? I mean, we have to keep doing our own work so that we can hold space in a, in a therapeutic way for our clients. Yeah, that's really helpful. Those are some helpful ideas to even as consider our own self-care, even in, in the academic world or in ministry or wherever uh, people might be speaking then about you talked about mm-hmm. contemplative prayer a little bit and earlier on about mm-hmm. your own faith uh, as a Christian. How does your Christian faith mm-hmm. inform, inform your career as a counselor? Yeah, I mean, I am so grateful for my experience in seminary because I was really able to wrestle in that time with how I believe psychology and faith integrate. And that's a dynamic process for me, meaning it's not like it's not static, it's not necessarily finished. It's something that I'm always holding in tension. But I think one thing that is really true for me is that I don't separate my faith from my work. Like it is because I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that I'm a therapist. Like it is exactly because I believe um, that God is the author of healing, that I do the work that I do. And so, you know, I work with a lot of clients who aren't Christian and I'm grateful and honored to do that work with them. And and in that space, I don't, you know, I really leave it up to the client um, if and when they want to explicitly talk about faith things. But for me personally, it is it is inseparable um, to who I am. And so I see that as whether I'm 
explicitly saying that I'm doing what I'm doing or talking about what I'm talking about or doing trauma work or holding space or believing that even in, a, you know, in terms of common grace, that God provides tools to all of us. Um, that is a huge motivation for me to be, I hope and pray, a healing space and person um, in the world. The other side to that question, how does your mental health background inform your faith? Yeah, that's also a really great question. I think for me, one of the things that I love, and I think it is, I want to say this quote is from David Benner, if I remember correctly, but he talks about the need for humility as we do integrative work in terms of mental health and faith. And that is a really important idea to me in terms of how I see mental health informing faith. Like one example is, you know, we have just this amazing body of research that has begun to acquire um, around, um, you know, neuroscience and interpersonal neurobiology and the importance of learning how to feel our feelings and stay emotionally regulated and how that makes us resilient. And, you know, I think it's possible without that information to take things from the Bible out of context and say, well, feelings are bad. (laughs) Feelings aren't real, you know? But when we take research that is super, you know, has been um, examined time and time again, and we hold those things in tension, we can say, well, but is that the, is that true? Like, what about David, a man who had so many feelings, you know, like, what about Jesus who wept for his friends, even before he raised Lazarus? And so all that to say, I think the humility piece comes in and saying, it's important to sometimes take a step back and examine what we're looking at and say, this is interesting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I wonder how these things connect. And so for me, I would say that's a big role of mental health is sometimes to take a breath and to look at, um, to, to examine what I already know and to say, I wonder how these things connect and how they fit together. Sure. Yeah. And that made me think um, of, of anger as you were speaking, how oftentimes within the church, anger is looked at as a sin. Whereas Mm -hmm. I took a class uh, this past spring, a counseling class on forgiveness. uh, Well, it was anger, ostracism, forgiveness, and reconciliation was the title of the class. And it was very, Mm. very much shifted how I saw anger and how it actually can be, you know, it's an absolutely valid emotion that we all experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas mm-hmm. oftentimes in the church context, we're, we're told not to ever express that anger or not ever to even feel it, you know, to shut it down. Like you were yeah. saying, really kind of get it stuck inside your body mm-hmm. and not able to move forward. So I appreciated that idea of kind of re-examining our faith with mm-hmm. humility through the lens of, you know, whatever vocation someone is in. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think that's a great point. So what else has been, what has been helpful to you in your own spiritual formation lately? Are there particular spiritual practices that are helping you? Yeah, I I would say for me, there's two things that have been coming up. Um, one is the idea of embracing mystery. 
Mm. Um, and this idea that, frankly, the more confident I become in who Jesus is, the more that there are other things that I have to hold with a really open hand. And that, for me, is a spiritual formation practice because it is it takes trust to let go of areas where I want to have certainty. I want to know exactly what's going to happen or the rigidity of certain ideas can sometimes be comforting because they seem so sure. And so for me, it's really embracing this idea that, that there are definitely things that we can know and that there are some things that, that maybe we, we can't. And how, and how do we allow ourselves to hold that tension with God, to sit with God in what we do know? And, you know, this sometimes just looks like, you know, even as I talk about this, I can feel this, you know, speaking of that attunement to our body, I can feel that in my body and that there's a, there's a grief almost that comes with like, Mm -hmm. God, I want to know. (laughs) I want to know. There are things I want to know. And yet I hold with faith that, that it's okay that I'm this limited human (laughs) who has a particular calling on my life. And so I'll do that work and I'll take that next right step and I'll honor the mystery there. Kind of related then to close out, you know, you talk about not being able to know. And earlier you talked about leaning into hope or holding on to hope. Mm. What has been um, a quote or a verse or some sort of, you know, set of words that has helped you connect to hope and sort of embrace that mystery and the unknowing, I guess. Yeah, I love that. I love that question. I think one of the most powerful things for me lately um, has actually been the song by Lauren Daigle, the song Rescue. And I think, I don't know if you've heard it yet, but she just came out a couple weeks ago, I think. You know, and she says, I actually have the lyrics here. She says, you are not hidden. There's never been a moment you were forgotten. You are not hopeless. Though you have been broken, your innocence stolen. I hear your whisper underneath your breath. I hear your SOS. And then later, you know, it's like from the perspective of God that he says, I will send out an army to find you. And so, you know, touching back on that question of like, how do you not become fatigued in this work? Um, How do you not become cynical? For me, these types of words are this promise about who God is, like his actual character towards us, his posture towards those who are hurting. And that gives me such hope that I'm not alone in my own journey and my clients aren't alone and that um, I'm not alone even in caring for them. And so, yeah, this has just been a really important, you know, idea. Like when I go on walks, I often will listen to this song on repeat because it's just so um, empowering for me to, to hear these words. And so I've, I've really appreciated this song. Great. Thank you for sharing that. I, I also really appreciate songs or words where it's like God is speaking to you 
So you're able to just receive mm. that and not have to mm-hmm. over-intellectualize it or, you know, study it rather, but just to embrace it and receive. Um, again, as you talked about earlier, op- having open hands, both to release things mm. and also to receive. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yes, it's such an honor. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. Our guest today was Andi Kolber. You can find more information about Andi and her work at bravelyimperfect.com. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.